This is The Politics Lab, a podcast that puts politics under a microscope. On this week's episode, Bill and Phil reflect on the two-year anniversary of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, discuss the implications of a potential arms deal between Russia and North Korea, and then ponder whether the United States democracy needs an institutional overhaul. Now let's go to the lab. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Politics Lab. My name is Phil Barker, and I'm a professor of political science at Keene State College. And I'm joined, as always, by my colleague and best friend, Dr. Bill Muck, who's professor of political science at North Central College. Hey, Bill, how are you? I'm doing good, Phil. We, we, you know, people, the listeners don't know that we've already had technical troubles. We've had, you know, <laughs> we're trying to record this thing and then it stops on us. And uh, we need some assistance to make sure this all works. You know, yeah, we're, we're probably getting past our technical skills here. But two, two, uh, two old guys in their you know late forties aren't up to perfectly up to speed on, on technolo- technology these days. That's shocking. <laughs> and the, the the problem is, as we were saying, one of us is we're probably accidentally touching buttons. You know, I mean that's probably what it is. It's not anything like complicated. Like oh, my fat finger hit the button twice. You know? <laughs> oh. We'll we'll figure it out. So, yeah, but it's hot. It's not. It was hot here, and now the heat has moved your way. You were saying yeah. you turned your air conditioning off to record, and you're already sweating, huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not. It's not like crazy hot. It's in the 90s here, which I know much of the rest of the country thinks is is not that big of a deal. But like, we we just, I don't know. When you don't have the infrastructure, like up in here in in New England, like the. I, I was teaching yesterday and in an air conditioned building, but it's like the air conditioning just can't yeah. keep up. And so I just drip and sweat by the end of the class. That's not a great <laughs> learning environment when everybody's no. miserably hot. And I mean, for our listeners who aren't like familiar with college classrooms, right? When you get warm in there and you've got 35 students in there, it just sort of a, a thick film fills the space <laughs> and there's no air moving and it's everybody's wet and dripping and the smell is bad. And then you get probably 10 minutes in between classes and you hope that it all airs out, but it never does. And no. so then you, the new class walks into that gunk and then they got to do it all over again. It makes me think of you talking about that makes me think we, you and I used to both do model UN. Um, you still <laughs> yes. do it. Some, but they have but some of those conferences where you have not not 30 college students, but you'd have like 300 college students in a small room. And you it's just you would we would walk in to check on our students. And there's just like a, a cloud of like humidity and body odor and everything. Oh. else. It's not humanity can be ugly at times, it seems like. Even even refined humanity, right? right? The college classroom model UN, even right. that. Like if we were really pushed by humanity, like if there's ever a climate crisis that hits us, it's going to be bad news. That's that's not likely to happen, though, right? <laughs> no, no, no. The way they, actually things are things appear to be turning the corner. No, actually, this week there was a story in uh, I'm trying to think it was the New York Times or Washington Post, but like the more and more species are going extinct. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the data on this is just really, really overwhelming. Right. The um, yeah, we, that has been bad for a while. But like the most recent one suggested that it's even getting worse in terms of species existence. So I, I think climate change probably has something to do with that. Yeah, it could be. I, we, I don't remember if we talked about it on here or not, but there was a news story also a couple of weeks ago where they set the the record for the warmest water temperature ever. And like yes. off the coast of Florida, they had like 105 degree ocean temperatures. That's that's that can be good. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's crazy. And so you're getting like a lot of uh, species, you know, that are going extinct. But then you're also getting these invasive species who are like taking advantage of it. That was the other thing that the new report came out and said that like globalization is bringing species into contact animals and wildlife and and flora and fauna, all of that in in really unproductive ways, too. So it's it's not looking good for New Hampshire. That's that's the big (laughs) takeaway. My thought is New Hampshire is not a bad place to be. We don't tend to have the 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 you know the severe weather we don't have the earthquakes we don't tend to have the wildfires at this point so it feels like you know when when you know we feel the full brunt of global warming nobody's going to avoid it but it does feel like inland new hampshire where i am might be one of the better places to be well that's a good point and being further north like once in in new hampshire figures out like air conditioning infrastructure you'll be fine (laughs) i think about that being in chicago too right you know a little bit further north but also being next to a great lake right water you know the next hundred years water politics Mm. and water you know scarcity is going to be a big deal so i'm happy that i'm near a big body of water that makes me feel better well and you this makes me think you you also spend a lot of time hunting right so I think you sent me an article this may have, I was trying to transition to you sent me an article this week about uh, wild boars and how they're radioactive and and yes uh, this is the way, so do you, the what the general idea is they've been trying to figure out why European wild? So I guess European wild boars have like really high levels of radioactivity um, that have been staying high too, right? Because like you know they initially thought like wasn't it like Chernobyl or something that there was, was Chernobyl, high levels, yeah. yeah, and that should have leveled off, but these boars continue to be radioactive. Yeah. So the, the what the research has found is that essentially it's not Chernobyl that is making them radioactive. It is the you know the before that the you know forty years prior to that of nuclear tests that had been going yeah. on all over and I, my my students are always surprised when I talk about because we talk about nuclear weapons and I think people think of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and they think there have been two bombs detonated and they don't realize the number of t- it's like thousands of nuclear bombs yes. that have actually been detonated through nuclear tests and whatnot and yeah that that apparently it turns out when you create all sorts of radioactive uh, um, you know elements and particles like that they don't just go away overnight apparently they find their way to wild boars um that's that's the place that they end up uh, <laughs> primarily so I, I thought it was also interesting that the article was like it's still okay to eat them they're low, they're low enough in radioactivity and i thought i don't know if that's enough consolation for me no, I wouldn't eat any radioactive boars. I also wouldn't go to Chernobyl, right? There are there are people mm. that you can go visit Chernobyl now, not for a long period of time, but for a short period of time. And they put one of those as like a Geiger counter around you. And they're like, if it starts going off, then you got to leave. And I'm like, no, <laughs> not going to do that. I don't see the, the appeal of that. So, yeah, it's all trouble. Send me some pictures, but I don't need to be there in person. This is exactly right. It was similar. So the uh, the nuclear reactor in Japan that had the incident was it like a decade ago or something. Yeah, Fukushima, yeah. They're now releasing some of the water. And apparently what Japan's doing is safe. And I, I say that knowing literally nothing about the science. But they're saying like the levels that they're releasing, the toxic water isn't all that toxic. You know, so I'm sure the surrounding countries are like, wonderful. Thanks. This is great. Didn't want to eat fish anyhow. <laughs> Oh, human, humanity does some really amazing things, but we're also pretty, yeah, we're, we're not the brightest about some things as well. <laughs> right. All right. Before we dive into our official topic, you want to remind everybody how to stay connected. We've got some really interesting topics, but, but specific readings tied to all of them as well. Yeah, so uh, we're uh, the website is thepoliticslab.com, and um, as usual, you can go there and click on this week's episode and find links to 
relevant articles. There's not as many articles this week, but they're longer articles. So if you're intrigued by some of the stuff we talk about, a really in-depth, fascinating read on the end of the Afghan war, and then a really interesting in-depth argument from uh, uh, from the Atlantic as well about America's institutions and, and how um, our institutions are flawed. So both of those, uh, as well as some other articles, are available on the website at thepoliticslab.com. You can also find our social media links there. You can find emails for Bill and I. That's your go-to hub for all things Politics Lab related. It's good to have a hub, right? A hub is really right. important. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, so we're going to begin today by reflecting on the two-year anniversary of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Two years ago, August of 2021, the United States officially ended the longest war in its history. As many of our listeners will remember, the evacuation of Afghanistan was chaotic and largely seen as a blemish on Joe Biden's foreign policy legacy. Now, we're going to focus in on a cover story in The Atlantic that Phil mentioned by Franklin Four, which offers an inside account of those final days in Afghanistan. Um, it's an excerpt from a forthcoming book titled The Last Politician Inside Joe Biden's White House and the Struggle for America's Future. Uh, the article was a powerful read and details what it was like to make life or death decisions when one's well-organized plans go out the window. So there's a lot to break down here in the piece, but I'm going to share a couple passages that struck me. Uh, the first offers a perspective on Biden's approach to foreign policy. I'm going to read a little bit from this. So, quote, and amid the crisis, a crisis that taxed his character and managerial acumen, the president revealed himself. For a man long caricatured, uh, caricatured as a politician, a political weather vane, Biden exhibited determination, even stubbornness, despite furious criticism from the establishment figures whose approval he usually craved. For a man vaunted for his empathy, he could be detached, even icy when confronted with the prospect of human suffering. Kind of speaking about that uh, detachment or leaving Afghanistan. Here's another one. When it came to foreign policy, Joe Biden possessed a swaggering faith in himself. He liked to knock the diplomats and pundits who would pontificate at the Council on Foreign Relations and the Munich Security Conference. He called them risk-averse, beholden to institutions, lazy in their thinking. Phil, you've been described as lazy in your thinking too, right? <laughs> lazy in lots of things, yep. Yes. <laughs> so listening to these complaints, a friend once post, uh, posed the obvious question. If you have such a negative thing to say about the confabs, then why attend so many of them? Biden replied, if I don't go, they're going to get stale as hell. <laughs> so finally, here's one more passage discussing uh, when Biden was vice president. He counseled President Obama about the dangers of letting generals pressure you into a decision. Quote, in his 2020 memoir, A Promised Land, Obama recalled that he agonized over his Afghan policy. At that moment, Biden pulled him aside and told him, listen to me, boss. Maybe I've been around this town for too long, but one thing I know is when these generals are trying to box in a new president, he drew close and whispered, don't let them jam you. All right, Phil, well, this is the two year anniversary and offers a, a moment to assess the end of the U.S. war in Afghanistan, as well as the foreign policy strategy of Joe Biden. So what struck you about this, this account of the end of the Afghan war? I, well, first of all, I thought the article is really fascinating. I mean, it goes into, yeah. you know, tells these very kind of personal views, talks about, you know, uh, as things sort of fell apart, as as there were American soldiers who were killed um, in the, the final days of the sort of evacuation of, of uh, the airport in Afghanistan um, and, and Biden going and, and dealing with uh, grieving families and having yeah. you know, people like take their anger out on him. I, so I, I, the, the thing that I that I one of the 
the kind of key takeaways I had from this article is not necessarily related to Af- Afghanistan in general or to necessarily even like Joe Biden, but it was this really fascinating glimpse of foreign policy decision making and the extent to which it is incredibly complex. So you and I both teach U.S. foreign policy, and I, like I, I think this is a great article. Like I, I should have my students read this next time I teach uh, foreign policy because it, it gets to it gets past the kind of abstract big picture theories, you know, what's good for, and, and, and it gets at the humanity of these decisions. It gets at the, the fact that this was incredibly complicated. The article really gets at how things were changing day to day. Things that Joe Biden had been told about how long American troops could hold out did not, you know, um, uh, play out. There were lots of times where the, the American government or the Biden administration would, sort of adapt to something that had changed only to find that it had changed even further. So they would sort of make a plan. And before that, you know, would come up with a plan in which the 25 miles around the airport were going to be a no-go zone for the Taliban. And by the time they could even get that agreement done, Taliban troops were already in that zone. So all of that, like it's just constantly changing. It's complicated. It's complex. Um, and and I think that you, you realize that when you see this. And the other part of it is that foreign policy making, foreign policy decision making is a human enterprise. And so you see Joe Biden, you know, this is a human being who's making these decisions. And, and there's good to that. And that I think this article shows, you know, um, Joe, Joe Biden's humanity, like sort of realizing the, the implications, like really struggling with, you know, that this was going wrong. And he was, you know, he felt personally responsible for that, his willingness to confront grieving families, um, uh, but also, you know, just the, the difficulty, the emotional difficulty of all of that, but also on the flip side, the human nature of it as well. One of the quotes you read where he, you know, this sort of self-confidence, you realize all the flaws of humanity, this like overconfidence in your own view of things, um, and how that plays out. So I, I think, you know, my, like the, the, the first thing that I think of when I look at this is, is realizing that, you know, in, in the classroom, when we talk about these, you know, abstract ideas of foreign policy, you realize that this is, these are real people making real decisions about things that are incredibly, you know, uh, there's, there's, you know, all sorts of different things happening at the same time. And and you realize those, those challenges. Well, I think that's right. And you said it really, really well. We assume, like you and I, we we study the international system, we study foreign policy, and we have endless time, right? We can go back. A lot of what we do is read about cases, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right now, I'm talking about the start of World War One. you know, over 100 years to think about and analyze the decision-making process. And it, it allows us some distance to be critical and think about this because time is not an issue. But when you read this article and you think about what what Biden and, and his national security advisor Sullivan and the secretary of state Blinken, what they're all doing is they have to, as you said, make these hard decisions with incomplete information with time crunch crunches. And I think the most common critique you hear of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, it was chaotic, disorganized, that the Biden administration didn't know what they were doing. And then when you read the real account is they had multiple different plans, as you noted, right? And they had a plan, even if things went AWOL, like totally out of uh, expectations, but it was even different from that. And so you can't always plan for these contingencies. And so then in the moment, 
you have to adapt. And I think it's fair to say they were in a difficult position and they probably didn't handle it as well as they could have. But I can't imagine anybody handling it well. Right. It was almost an impossible situation that they had been put into. So it is really sort of revealing to see them in those moments. Um, And I think to Joe Biden's credit, even though the decision was poor, um, he didn't throw his advisors under the bus. Um, You know, he took the blame. He took the heat for it. Uh, You mentioned one of the most uh, powerful passages is when they're talking about Biden meeting with the families of some servicemen whose lives had been lost in a in a kind of last minute attack. And they were screaming, one of the women screaming at, I hope you burn in hell. Mm-hmm. And Biden just sort of taking that. And I think that's part of the job of a president. But as a human being, oof, that's that's hard to try to be rational and logical and say, what's the big picture here? And and so I think, you know, Biden was was firm that this had to happen and he was willing to take a lot of heat and a lot of ugliness to get to that point. Well, you said that, you know, he in, in as you were talking, you talked about making bad decisions or whatever. I, 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 I think there were things obviously that were sort of mishandled in this process, yeah. but I still think it was the right decision to make. And I think there's there. So, you know, it could have been done, could have been carried out more flawlessly, obviously. But I think, you know, this is where he could have made no decision. He could have, you know, decided to leave troops there and, and, you, you don't tend to draw as much attention or criticism for continuing with the status quo as you do when you sort of mix it up. And so part of it is that we we see how it went poorly. We, we see the, you know, dozen American soldiers lives that were lost, the 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 sort of refugee crisis that's kind of created as as American troops leave Afghanistan. We don't see the counterfactual. We don't see like if we hadn't done this, how would it have played out? And we don't know what that looks like. But the idea that if we had stayed or had kept troops in Afghanistan or whatever, that we wouldn't have suffered 12 casualties is also like, so it's easy to sort of see the thing that has happened as, as negative. Um, I, there was one, uh, you know, Dan Dresner sort of responded to this article. We could talk a little bit about that, but there was a comment in on somebody had commented on, on Dan Dresner's article about how when bad things happen, we like to imagine that they could have been avoided. Right. And, and it's something like this, when you're leaving Afghanistan, it, it, it's there's like no way for it to go perfectly, right? I mean, this was the, this was the end of a war that had been ineffective, was problematic, and and it's hard to imagine any kind of perfectly smooth exit. And so we would like to think when when we see bad things happen, we like to think, well, it, it could have been done better. But I think also it also could have been done much worse as well. So I think you know I, this is not me trying to defend you know to say that Joe Biden handled this perfectly, but um, I, I do think he deserves some credit for making the hard decision and, and taking the heat that came with that when when in some ways it would have been easier just to kind of roll with the with the status quo. This is an important point because we've seen that throughout U.S. history where previous presidents will do that, right? They realize we've talked a lot about Vietnam and, and other wars and Afghanistan was a perfect example of this. You, you knew you couldn't win the war, right? And presidents and, and their their military advisors know that you're not going to win this war. But politically, you can't lose a war, right? So the incentive is to kick the can, right? We saw that through Vietnam early on. I mean, the Pentagon Papers, all everybody knew that it was unlikely the United States was going to win the Vietnam War. But no president could, could take the political hit of losing the Vietnam War. And I think it was the same thing with Afghanistan, probably by the end of the Bush term, 
Bush had a pretty good sense that this was not winnable. And then we saw another eight years of Obama who campaigned on getting the United States out of wars and didn't, right? Was still there for an entire eight years. Donald Trump comes around and he'd been very critical of the same thing. He just continues to kick the can. And so, yeah, you're right. Joe Biden was one of the few people that was willing to take that hit. And there's never an easy or pretty way to lose a war. And that's that's what happened. But it has freed the United States up to rethink its foreign policy commitments. Um, now, that doesn't mean that there aren't just awful human rights stories coming out of Afghanistan and the Taliban is an oppressive, awful regime, right? But it is a sort of classic realist decision where Joe Biden said the U.S. strategic interests are elsewhere and I'm not going to let those humanitarian concerns drive policy, which hard to do, right? I don't know if I could have done that, but it's probably the right long-term strategic interest of the United States to have done so. It's one of the challenges that, you know, I talk with my students about this as well. It's what it, From a distance, it's easy to look at the moral questions involved and say yeah. what's right and what's wrong. And it's wrong to, and it was, it was wrong to abandon so many people in Afghanistan who had put their faith in American troops, people who had worked with the American military and, and whatnot. Uh, the, abandon, like, forget the American part of it. Abandoning, you know, Afghanistan to the Taliban is the not yeah. the morally right thing to do. Um, but it, it, the this is where you, like you said, when you talk about realism, there are limited resources. There are limited, you know, uh, um, uh, the, the, the U.S. has uh, limited troops, limited mil- you know, economic resources um, and has to make decisions about where to, you know, if, if you follow it down the line of everywhere there is something wrong in the world, we're going to intervene. It, it Like you very quickly get to a point that is, you know, an impossibility. And so um, I don't like it. I don't like that you have to sort of pick and choose that you can't always be sort of doing the right thing everywhere. But um, it's one of the realities. And it is also why, like like you were saying, it's why I love being the type of person who gets to analyze rather than the person who has to make these decisions. I don't envy Joe Biden or the people in his administration who had to make these sorts of hard decisions as they were playing out. So it's, again, that's kind of the, that's what I, I appreciate about this article is showing the humanity of it all. No, absolutely. Another angle we sort of hit on this was uh, the role that generals can often play in foreign policy making. And Joe Biden, having seen that over the years, especially, you know, and, and I think this, you know, where he goes up to Obama and says, I know when generals are trying to jam you into a corner, don't let them do that. And, and Obama was a, a relatively new politician, didn't have a lot of experience. We can think about other examples. You and I have talked at length about the Cuban Missile yeah, Crisis JFK, and the way in yeah. which, yeah, the military tried to corner Kennedy into a military solution for the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it's interesting to think about those various individuals who were uh, we're, we're not intimidated by the military. Uh, you think about like a, a Colin Powell, who was secretary of state uh, and had that experience in the military. So he knew how to interact with military voices. Uh, Eisenhower, right? I mean, thinking interestingly about Eisenhower and, and how he ends his presidency arguing against the military industrial complex because yeah. he had come from that and saw that, right? So, you know, I think Joe Biden is an interesting figure in the sense that he doesn't seem intimidated by the military and understands that they play an important role, but not always a determinative role in what U.S. foreign policy should be. Yeah, I mean, this is again where foreign policy is a human enterprise, and there's been you know research on this. Graham Allison, right, Cuban Missile Crisis stuff talks yeah. about how you know uh, people are biased, right, and so it's normal for the military to advocate for military solutions. It's what they spend their life doing, studying, understanding, and so uh, you know even when you think you're unbiased, you you have these kind of biases based on your background and where you come from, and and so I, I think it's important to be aware of those. And JFK is a good example of where he. 
he kind of understood the 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 arguments that were coming at him and was willing to push back and and i think it's it's commendable that biden is willing to push back as well i i do there there's there is a danger in which you become so opposed to them that you're not open to their expertise either. And, and, yes, and there, yes. there's that possibility. And that, that, I mean, maybe that's a transition because Dan Dresner, you know, a political yeah. scientist basically argues that as, as you read through this, his, his takeaway is, you know, he focuses in on a number of those quotes, like one of the ones you read where Biden is sort of more confident in himself where he sees, <laughs> yes. uh, he sees diplomacy as essentially, um, I, I forget how he was, it was like, how did he describe like it? It was fam- something family policy. Politics. Yes. Yeah. Where you have yeah. to get, you know, two surly uncles to cooperate or whatever. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, Dresner basically says that that's true to some extent. But, um, you know, Biden seemed to think he he kind of that that, you know, that foreign policy wasn't about these kind of big theories or whatever it was yeah. or grand strategy. It was about like, you know, personal politics right? getting people to work together. And and to some extent, that's true. But if you believe that too fully, you dismiss experts theory. You know, that's what Dan Dresner's argument yes. is. It, it explains why Biden's been really good at sort of coalition build, what he calls gardening, right? Like building up our, our coalitions in Europe and with Japan and whatnot, and why he's been less good at some of these other, um, you know, more kind of conflictual and, and the, the sort of more inherently there's, there's more inherent tension to it. Um, because Biden, you know, might think he, he knows good enough. You know, he doesn't need, uh, you know, these talking heads, the, the think tanks and whatnot to tell him how to, how to view the world. And, and I, I mean, there's, it's, it's always good to be a little skeptical, but it's dangerous to not be open to those ideas and those expert arguments as well. I think that's well said. Right. And you and I are part of the blob, right? We're part right. of this foreign policy community who sits back and, and thinks about things. And, and Biden is skeptical of some of what we offer. Not that he ignores, right, because he still shows up to some of these meetings, but he is skeptical uh, of it. And I, I think, it, it, you know, there should be a healthy balance, right? You you don't want uh, the foreign policy blob dictating what you're spending your time on. But it's also you're right. There's a lot of expertise and insight that that can be offered. You and I spent a lot of time thinking about public intellectualism and the value of getting political science and political science research more into the hands of policymakers, because there's a lot that we actually, the Academy knows about how the world works, right? And so, you know, it's, it's interesting to see Biden's skepticism of some of that and some pushback against it. That being said, he surrounded himself with some really, really smart foreign policy people. So maybe it's, it's kind of a balance there, too. So I know we need to, you know, think about moving on, but like two years on, I mean, we talked about when this happened, about whether this, what, what sort of impact this would have on Joe Biden's legacy and whatnot. And, and I, I don't know, I'm kind of, I think it would be kind of interesting to revisit those. Do you think this has, ha- I, I, I tend to think that most Americans aren't thinking about this anymore. Like this is kind of off of their radar, especially with inflation and, you know, Donald Trump and the upcoming election and all this other stuff. I think this, if people don't like Joe Biden, it's not because of, of how he handled Afghanistan. Um, but I also think like, I, there's the other question of like, what grade looking back on it again, only two years, you, you were talking about Cuban missile crisis. We continue yeah. to learn new information about the Cuban yeah. missile crisis 60 years later. So we have you know limited information. It's only been two years, but like, what do you, do you give Joe Biden, uh, you know, is this a, does he get a failing grade? Does he get a, a, what, how do you grade him on his handling of the end of the Afghanistan war? I think you could grade the decision, right, and the execution, right? So there's different components, right? And I think the decision 
ultimately history will suggest was the right decision, mm-hmm. um, that it was in the U.S. interest, maybe even conceivably in Afghanistan's interest. Right? It didn't feel like there was going to be any real meaningful transition there unless Afghans had a chance to self-determine. So, you know, that decision itself is is strong. You know, he's I don't know if it's an A, but he's in a B. The execution is still bad, right? The execution is a D or an F, right? I mean, that's mm. the thing, even though it was difficult. I think they did the best with the circumstances, but, it, you know, it was still poor, right? Right. You still had planes taking out. It mimicked some of the end of, of Vietnam with helicopters having people hang on that. I mean, so so I think the dividing the decision versus the execution is 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 useful there. What, what about you? Are you are you are you a kinder grader than I might be? I, I think I am. I, th- I think you're you're splitting of the of the grade into uh, the oh, the decision and the execution was exactly what I was thinking. And I think the decision yeah. is, is still, uh, you know, I, I, it, it, I still give it an A. Right. I mean, again, yeah. it's, it's not it wasn't flawless. There's bad things that happen as a result of it. But um, it's hard to say that we should have continued in Afghanistan. Just like, it didn't feel like a war we were fighting to win. And so um, I think that's, that's a, that's the right decision to make. I I think I'm a little more generous with the execution. Um, I'd give it, I don't know, a C. So I I give it like an average. I think it could have gone far worse. Um, It could have been better, but you know, the article talks about as well, like, uh, part of what you don't see, we see the suicide attacks, we see the pe- mobs of people are left behind, but but you don't see as much that, you know, he, he talks about how, how many hundreds of flights they flew out of that airport yeah. and the, in the, how many thousands of people they, they evacuated on short notice in terrible circumstances as the city was falling quicker than expected to the Taliban. And, and when you look at it in that context, I think there's, there's a degree of difficulty factor that goes into this as well. And, and some of that difficulty was created by how, you know, how they went about, um, you know, announcing their withdrawal. But, but I still think I, 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 I tend to give it a slightly better grade than you, because I think we often overlook some of the successes of something like this. I think you're probably right. I think that's probably a more accurate grade there. And I guess real quick before we move on, I think the the public opinion thing is interesting, right? So we saw Joe Biden's numbers, the dip occurred after Afghanistan, right? So Joe Biden's numbers have dropped and then basically stuck at, at a level and he hasn't been able to pull them up. And so Afghanistan, I think, was the maybe the determining factor in that initial drop. But I don't think the American public is, is thinking about this anymore. And yeah. certainly there are Republicans who are thinking about criticism of Biden. They keep that in their bucket of criticisms. And there's even potentially, you know, one of the impeachments may explore Afghanistan. But I I don't think if we went on and asked average Americans, I don't think they would be thinking about Afghanistan anymore. And I think that's, you know, in some ways it was smart for Biden to do it earlier than later. Well, this is again, right? we we <laughs> I keep dragging this sure. up, but as you said that, it made me think, you know, we've talked so much about the Republican Party over the last couple of weeks. We've talked about the idea of existential threat and the way the the sort of logic of, of the Republican Party has has changed over the years. And this is an example as well where. Part of the rhetoric when when your party drifts to oh I, so I I've been watching commercials in New Hampshire for primary candidates Republican primary oh, yeah. candidates, and the arguments that they're making are not nuanced right they are of this variety of Democrats are evil they're set on destroying the American way of life 
et cetera. If that's the basis of your party and your worldview, then then Joe Biden didn't handle Afghanistan well is is a piddly minor thing that, uh, that uh, it's too nuanced to matter. And so I think for most voters, they're not like we are at a place in, in American politics where we're not analyzing the the minutia of decision making. We're we're like we're in this like identity yes. politics game. And so I think uh, in the long run, these are the things that should matter. These are the things that we should be talking about at a debate, you know, is Joe Biden's decision making the right sort of decision? Is he the leader we want? But those aren't the, those aren't the debates we're having. We're, we're having these big picture, uh, you know, I don't know, make America great again versus, you know, is democracy good kind of arguments. And so we, we miss out on those, those nuanced things. And so it, along those lines, I don't imagine that this matters to many voters. No, and that it is an, it would be a worthy conversation to have a real, like we've just done to think about like, you know, do we reward or do we hold accountable somebody like Joe Biden for making that kind of tough decision? Right. I, I would I would welcome that kind of conversation. So, yeah. all right. Well, we're going to we're going to stick with foreign policy for our next topic and take a look at the news that North Korean North Korean leader Kim Jong Un plans to take his heavily armored train on a visit to Russia this month to discuss the possibility of North Korea providing Moscow with weapons to support its war in Ukraine. Uh, it appears that Russia is in desperate need of weapons, specifically ammunition and artillery shells. On the other side, sanction-starved North Korea desperately needs hard currency and food. It is also likely that North Korea is looking for some help with its nuclear and missile programs. So it's a potential win-win scenario for both of those actors. Unfortunately, it's also a lose-lose situation for the United States, South Korea, and Japan. The only positive news might be that we once again get to see Kim Jong-un's crazy slow armored train in action. Um, Phil, this is an interesting interesting development. So is this a big deal, little deal, no deal? What do you, what do you make of this, this little news bit? Well, I mean, it's kind of flying under, I mean, it's not flying under the radar, but I feel like, you know, if, unless you're paying attention to the the world news section of the New York Times, you don't tend to see these sorts of things. But I, I my tendency is to say that this is at least potentially a really big deal um, yeah. for a couple of different reasons. I, I think it's potentially a, a, a big deal, um, certainly because, you know, the, the ongoing war in, in Ukraine um, is as it drags out, there's already some, you know, we've talked about like maintaining a coalition that supports Ukraine over the long term is going to be harder and harder. So the more that Russia can drag that out, the more likely they are to kind of pull off what they might consider some sort of victory. And so any sort of supplies coming to Russia are, are going to be important. But it's also a big deal because we are at a point where Russia is having to turn to North Korea for ammunition, right? Russia is having to return to Iran for drones. Like that tells you something about the state of Russian power, of, of where Russia's military stands um, in, in, in the world. I mean, this should be uh, a... Um, this should be encouraging. Like what this should do is it should make the the people who are supporting Ukraine, the countries that are supporting Ukraine, even more determined. Like Russia's in a bad place. If we can just hold on a little bit longer, right? This is, this shows us where it is. Um, where the things stand. The other, the other thing I think is is really important that, that you kind of mentioned uh, in passing, but I think is maybe the bigger story here is the extent to which, in return, Russia might be willing to help North Korea with nuclear yes, yeah. or with missile programs. So, you know, North Korea not that long ago, right? You go back. I, I don't. I'd have to go back and look. It feels like twenty years ago, but it was probably less than that. When they first start their nuclear program, they they had crappy nuclear weapons and they had terrible delivery systems. Like I, at one point, they were using like kerosene powered rockets, right? I mean, it was bad. 
And all of a sudden, very quickly overnight, they made really quick progress on their on their weapon systems. And it's still a little unclear, but they probably got supplies or plans or whatever from former Soviet missile makers, possibly in Ukraine, possibly in other places. And so I think this sort of deal, um, I think North Korea has more to gain than than Russia in a lot of ways. And and the extent to which this could make really significant advances for North Korea should be, um, you know, of of real concern to the United States. So I I think the the combination on both ends is, 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 I think it's a pretty significant, significant thing. What do you think? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think and you, you you nailed it, right? So the idea is that it's going to impact the war in Ukraine, right? This is going to extend uh, – the, the war is basically bogged down into a defensive war at this point. Both sides – the defenses on both sides are so strong that it's just really difficult for either side to make any incursions. And then suddenly if you're rearming Russia with these kind of armaments, it's, it's going to make it much more difficult for – uh, Ukraine to take back Crimea, to take back any of those four provinces. So it, it, it's going to lead more towards a stalemate. But I think your point about what it does for North Korea is the really, really important one and why it's a big deal. You know, North Korea has intercontinental ballistic missiles, but we're not sure how well they work, right? right. Uh, and they've been struggling getting a nuclear warhead onto those intercontinental ballistic missiles that duct work tape. in a reasonable way. Duct <laughs> yes, tape is duct the, tape. the method. Yes. yes. So, you know, so so the the, the assessments of the, the the state of their nuclear weapons is that, well, maybe they can hit the continental United States, but we don't know. Can they hit Washington, D.C.? Can they just hit the West Coast? Right. So much of it depends on the sophistication of that technology. And I, I think an alliance with Russia allows them to make that kind of jump that you saw earlier. Right. Where suddenly they're like, OK, here's here's how you handle the nuclear tip missiles. Here's here's what you're missing on the ICBMs, uh, potentially nuclear submarines. Right. So I I absolutely think the bigger part of this is going to be the way in which North Korea will be able to augment its nuclear capabilities. And that has a ripple effect for South Korea, for Mm -hmm. Japan, for the Pacific more broadly. Right. So I think that is we're going to see play out there where uh, North Korea becomes a much more dangerous regional actor. Right. So you're right. I think there's Ukraine implications. There's Pacific uh, dynamics. And then there's international ones when you bring the United States having to worry about an intercontinental ballistic missile. So, yeah, I, I, I tend to think this is kind of a big deal. Well, and, and it, it provides a potential roadmap for Iran. So, I mean, Iran has been the yes. other country that, that Russia has reached out to and has worked with um, in, in their need for weapons. And, you know, if some sort of deal or breakthrough is made with North Korea, Iran, I mean, North Korea already has missiles and already has weapons. And so, you know, a, a, a potential Iranian breakthrough could be even uh, even even more significant, I, I think. Um yeah, I mean it, it's it's uh, it, it I don't I, it it does feel like this is uh, potentially a, a alteration to the kind of balance of power in in Asia if it if it plays out that way. Well, and the uh, absolutely right, and along those lines, what we've seen out of China over the last couple of years is they're looking to find ways to kind of dethrone the U.S. hegemonic order. North Korea is very much in line with that. Russia as well. So you might see some sort of alliance, a stronger alliance among those three where they start to say, hey, let's use and work together to try to undermine some of the the role the United States plays in structuring this international system. We'd rather see a different system. And, and anytime you've got more cooperation, Russia and China are obviously the, the most important actors, but North Korea plays a role in that as well. So, you know, I think you're right. The balance of power dynamics, hegemonic order kind of stuff, all of that is is impacted by this this deal. 
And it's a hard thing to navigate as well, because, I, you know, you're dealing with two countries, Russia and North Korea, where, you know, we, we live in a world of the nuclear nonproliferation treaty, the idea of like sharing nuclear secrets or sharing, I mean, sharing uh, missile technology is less frowned upon than sharing nuclear technology. But yeah. in either case, it would be obviously the international community would would frown on it. But. Um, you're dealing with Russia and North Korea, both of whom are like subject to extensive sanctions already. So if they do that, if they make some sort of deal, like wh what other cards do you have left to play in terms of punishing no North Korea or Russia? And, and so, yeah, I mean, this is the day it, it's it, it doesn't this doesn't mean that we shouldn't have done everything we did. I, I think all of the 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 sanctions, the support of Ukraine were has been the right decision. Um, but it's also where, you know, the 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 more you do the the sort of less you have available in your back pocket to to respond to new um, issues that arise and this is you know again back to the first topic the complexity of foreign yeah. policy and how things continue to change and and you know what what else can you do to deter or punish a north korea or a russia when they're already kind of at the top of the list of world bad guys Right. And, and this is another example of where the United States intelligence community, and I think specifically the Biden administration, released this, right? So the, they're the one that released the say, we think this is going to happen. And when they did so, they said, and this would be really bad. And, and if this happens, there's going to, you know, it's just going to be bad for North Korea. And I think North Korea is like, really bad? Like, what else can you do? Can you, you know, there's not much more you can do to punish Russia or North Korea. There's a, there's a certain freedom when you're so overly sanctioned that you don't really care about the implications. So unless the U.S. is thinking some sort of military response, which they won't be, um, you're a bit handcuffed in terms of how you respond to this deal. And um, yeah, so I, I think it, uh, it, it is a win-win for both of them at this stage. Do you think that I, this is just I, me thinking as we sit here talking, I, there's also this weird dynamic where, you know, China has been sort of North Korea's longest you know ally and supporter or whatever. And Russia, Chinese, like you were saying, Russia, China relations have have Im sort of improved during this yeah. time. Right. It's like clear that they, their connections have increased. But China is also sort of wary or concerned of, of, of Putin's war in Ukraine and whatnot. I, does does the introduction of a I mean R Russia and North Korea also have you know relationships or whatever but uh, is there a situation in which the the, the China becomes you know uh, flustered or unhappy with like growing connections between Russia and North Korea is that does that dynamic come into play or it's essentially like in a world uh, in the world we live in today they're the they're just you know they're all in the same boat and and they're going to look to each other. I think you're I think they're skeptical of each other, but the bigger concern is remains the United States. So as long as the United States remains that that actor, I think it will pull them together, right? I mean, the enemy of your enemy is your friend, right? I mean, so I think yeah. that that way I think we're likely to see at least an attempt, but but clearly very different perspectives on things. I mean, yeah. China is not always pleased with North Korea, nor are they pleased with Russia, right? And so I think it's it will be a complicated alliance, to say the least. Mm. Well, should we transition to democracy? Yeah, let's let's do it. So we wanted to finish up today by stepping back and talking about the role that political institutions play in America's democratic struggles. I am excited by this, Bill. You know how much <laughs> I love institutions. Um, yeah. So this week, Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Zablat, Harvard political scientists, authors of How Democracies Die. It's a great book. We've talked about it a lot on here. Um, the, the two of them, Levitsky and Zablat, wrote a great article in The Atlantic. Um, in it, Levitsky and Zablat argue that, quote, 
America was once the standard bearer for democratic constitutions. Today, however, it is more vulnerable to minority rule than any other established democracy. Far from being a pioneer, America has become a democratic laggard. That's a good Mm. word, laggard. Um, And America's outdated institutions are the reason why the U.S. now scores lower on measures of democracy than, quote, every established democracy in Western Europe and lower than new or historically troubled democracies such as Argentina, the Czech Republic, Lithuania, and Taiwan. So we've talked about, you know, democratic backsliding. We've talked about how America has gone from being this kind of, you know, example of democracy to now being sort of uh, an endangered democracy by most measures of democracy. Um, what Levitsky and Zablat do, they, they put together a story that, that I, I find really interesting. And, and the story goes like this. 200 years ago, America was the first country to establish a democratic constitution. But lots of other countries followed soon thereafter. And most of those countries set up government 200 years ago to protect minority interests like rural populations and landowners, the, the, you know, the elite that had been in power before and to create checks on majority rule. But a lot has changed in the last 200 years. Um, and every other country has, as a result, reformed their constitutions in ways that make them more democratic. So specifically, reforms um, in most countries have done away with indirect elections like our electoral college. They have shifted election systems to more democratic models like proportional representation. They have eliminated bicameral legislatures or at least stripped upper chambers of their power. So you can look to the House of Lords in Britain, which has become largely symbolic now. Um, reforms have done away with overrepresentation of rural areas, which we continue to do in the United States. And they have almost all established judicial reforms like term limits for justices. America has done almost none of this. So the result is that we have a 19th century system running a 21st century government, and it has allowed minorities to see, seize control of power and prevent any real governing from happening. So some very quick facts from this article, they, they point out that America is the only presidential democracy in the world in which the president is elected via an electoral college rather than directly by voters. Um, The only country in the world. America is one of the few remaining democracies that retains a bicameral legislature with a powerful upper chamber. Almost all other countries have done away with that and have just essentially one, one legislative body. Um, it's the only country, only democracy with a strong malapportioned Senate. So the we, the way we structure the Senate is a remnant of times past. America is one of the few established democracies with first past the post electoral rules that allow pluralities to be manufactured. And America is the only democracy in the world with lifetime tenure for Supreme Court justices. So all of this, a system controlled by minority interests, which is what the U.S. is set up to do, is by definition not democratic bill if 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 minorities are if like you know minorities are controlling power then you can't really say that the the population is is dictating government so none of this is new to us political scientists but it's worth walking through some of these issues and discussing just how they interfere with democratic government so there's a whole lot here this article i loved it it like scratched all yeah. the itches that i you know this is the <laughs> stuff that i talk about in my classes i where do you want to start with all of this well, I, a couple things. I, mean, I think you're right. The the reason the article is so good is it provides a comparative perspective, right? So this is part of why you like it so much, right? Because it goes mm-hmm. around the world and talks about all of these modern day 
democracies and how they've evolved and adapted, right? And it, we tend in the United States to look back at our, to look at our constitution, to look at the founding fathers, and we revere these things, right? That this was a moment of brilliance, but so much of American politics is looking backwards, right? So we look to the past to history for answers for modern day questions, right? So we're thinking about how do we handle a globalized world? How do we handle cyber war? How do we handle all these modern problems we have today? Well, let's think about what the founding fathers said, right? Yeah. You know, and, and we have conversations about textualism. What did this document say? Originalism. What did the founding fathers mean? What was their intent? As we're trying to have conversations about modern issues of race, you know, abortion, global world economies, all of these things, we we pull ourselves back to say, this was such a perfect document. We need to go back there. It, it almost becomes kind of like a religious uh, dynamic where mm-hmm. like you go back to the great book and you can never question that book. And it's so counterproductive. And uh, in the article, they talk about Norway. And I found this just to be a wonderful example um, that Norway was like, you know, soon after the United States, they followed in our path, right? They looked and said, we want to use the United States Constitution as an example. And then since then, they have made, let me make sure I get this number right. In total, Norway's constitution has been amended 316 times from 1814 to 2014. I mean, you think about that, that now initially, like, oh, that sounds terrible. No, that is adapting your political structure to changing times, to think about how do we make that political system more reflective of the public, more or better prepared to attack problems that are pressing. Um, I, I think it's it's absolutely necessary to rethink this, but we're so ingrained in the United States to say we can never change anything. It means that we, to use the term you said, we are laggards, right? And we are clear laggards. Um, and I, you know, I don't imagine this is going to break through because we're so tied to these institutions and we love the electoral college and the Senate and all of these things. But, but this, this article, our listeners are, would really find it powerful. Um, yeah, you, this is like, so your sweet spot of institutions and comparative analysis, Phil. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I talk in, when I teach about, you know, democratic institutions or any institution, when you're talking about politics and you're talking about the, the, the system you put in place, you know, what I, I talk a lot in, in my class about how the institutions you choose determine winners and losers. So in yeah. our system, the, the fact that we have, you know, I, the one issue that I can get most of my students to agree on is that they all hate the two party system and they <laughs> all want a third party. But like, you have to realize that the reason we have a two party system is because of our elections. And, and it's not that Americans are like love two parties, or it's not that we don't want a third party. It's that uh, the rules of our elections mean that a third party will never be successful, or it's incredibly difficult for a third party to be successful. And so, you know, we as political scientists know these things. We, we, we have all sorts of research that shows, you know, the way that we can alter institutions to make government more effective, more democratic, and, and all of that. And so, I mean, they just kind of go through and list that. And and the frustrating thing is so much of the world recognizes that and has taken that to heart, has said, we want good government. And it's not a 
it is still philosophical. I think so much in America is like we have this philosophy of individual freedom. And I think um, it's still philosophical, but they want systems that are democratic, that work for the people, that respond to the people, the rest of the world. And so they update their institutions appropriately. I, I think what I really enjoyed about it was the way in which they trace this. And they talk about how almost everyone else had a system that looked like ours 200 years ago, because that's how government looked. Like 200 years ago, we weren't a particularly democratic society. We weren't a particular, I mean, we were worried about monarchies, but also we wanted to make sure that the powerful people and the elites or whatever still had their say. And so, you know, suffrage was limited, all this other stuff. And that worked great for 200 years ago. But as you know, what happened over time is that everyone else got more democratic. They put in place systems that eventually spread, you know, the vote to more and more people, made sure that the that the elections actually, uh, um, uh, you know, were, were transmitted to policy that government reflected. And and the U.S. has done has done none of that. It feels like the you know, the we've missed out on the big picture of we want a democratic and effective government. And so, you know, democratic, like small d, right? We want democracy and we want effective governance. And, and we've missed out on that and gotten caught up in, like you said, these kind of myths, these founding myths about um, where we come from. I think the other part of it is, you know, well, again, we could walk, like we could have a whole series of podcasts where we walk through, you know, what election systems would be more effective at eliminating sort of minority control. There are lots of election systems that still you know, make sure that you get these broad based coalitions, but they make it really hard for extremists to get elected. We have, you know, again, we have all sorts of evidence about putting term limits in place for, for judges, not electing judges, for instance, like we talked right. about before. Right. Um, you know, we have all of this information that, that we know, um, works out. And, and it's, again, if we step back, it, it's, I, I think about, you know, Rawls, uh, this political philosopher who talks about like the veil of ignorance, right. And this yeah. is the idea of, if you're going to structure a society, if you were going to create the rules for America and you didn't know whether you were going to be, you know, Elon Musk or a single mother in, you know, uh, I don't know, a, a single African-American mother in Detroit, how would you create a system? What would be the most fair way? And we certainly wouldn't give people in Wyoming disproportionate power in the Senate. We wouldn't right. put in place the filibuster like those things just don't. They're not good for democracy. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's frustrating to see, but they also acknowledge that one of the reasons that this has played out in the United States is that we have one of the most difficult processes for amending the Constitution amending, yes. as well. So, you know, we're back to this idea that like change needs to happen, but change is hard. It's hard to see how change happens in this particular instance. Well, and and it's it's what's I think hard for Americans to hear is that other countries change all the time, right? right? I mean that this is this is something that can and should be done, but because we have we don't have a lot of practice with it, and now the institutions are structured in such a way that those minority voices who who retain a disproportionate amount of power don't want to give that up, right? So if you're if you're Wyoming, you don't want to give up your two Senate seats. I mean, so there's now a vested interest in not changing that system. I, as you were talking, I was reminded of last year we had that conversation about Chile, right? Which which uh, had a big vote and then proposed a whole new constitution, and even though that that new constitution was voted down, like 
like for me, it was it was really inspiring because they said, hey, we're writing a constitution for the 21st century. We're going to think about the challenges and problems we face today. So so climate change should be part of that constitutional order. Right. We should think about LGBTQ rights. We should think about race, like the, all the things that we're grappling with now. We should have a constitution that thinks about those things as opposed to. To the U.S. Constitution, where the Supreme Court, you know, last year said that the EPA can't really regulate environmental policy. Why? Because the founders <laughs> didn't intend that. The founders didn't intend for bureaucracies to have that much pro- much power. And you're going, okay, maybe that's the case, but are our tools, our democratic tools, really up to the challenge? And and I think no, they're not. And uh, it's it's. When you read that article, we sort of knew this was the case, but the evidence is so overwhelming that the U.S. is desperate for some for a democratic upgrade. Yeah, we have we have a way in which like our you know patriotism sort of gets in the way of our, I I've had conver- yeah. I had conversations with family members at one point in which they you know I, I remember being asked like would you choose to live in Sweden over the like the U.S. in terms of like their system and I'm like well yeah of course their system is better than ours I mean it's right. like shocking right because it's it's like sacrilegious to to think that the U.S. is not but yes it's it is there's so much evidence I from a comparative perspective this is the other part that I that I kind of kept coming back to that they didn't they they talk about but not not as directly um you know there's also something that stands uh, that that stands out if you're doing comparison and you're looking at the ways in which you know western european countries and japan and all these other democracies have evolved and the us hasn't they have become more democratic we have clung to this idea of minority power and minority rule one of the things that like that stands out about the U.S. that is different is race. And so we have this history of slavery and race that plays in it as well. Um, and you just can't ignore like, you know, European countries have gotten increasingly diverse, have gotten quite diverse, actually, in the last kind of 50 years. But as when, the, you know, as they were sort of evolving their social welfare systems and their constitutions, they were pretty homogenous places. And we had this long history of slavery and race and a, and a desire to keep black people out of power and maintain sort of control. And, and I I don't think we, you miss a big part of the picture if you sort of um, overlook or underestimate the impact that that has on, and it's not just, I mean, it is, it is, you know, Africa, it is black Americans, but it's also in general where history, you know, it's at other times it was, you know, Italians or, you know, Asians or whatever that, that were, um, you know, were here, but we didn't want them in power. And so that is part of why we have, I think, clung, clung to a lot of these minority rule sort of uh, institutions as well. Well, and I think that helps us understand uh, Donald Trump and the MAGA movement, right? Make America great again. We talked last week about um, th- th- these are reactionary movements, right? They're they're not revolutionary in the sense that they're not trying to change things to improve them or not move, to, to change things and make them new. They're reactionaries trying to take us back in time, right? So the one of the big divides in the U.S. political system right now is these revolutionaries who are saying, like, let's update, let's think about race, let's think about these issues, LGBTQ rights, you know, let's try to be more progressive in how we think about uh, becoming more democratic. And another side saying, like, the, how we become more democratic is to go back. Right. To go back. And you'll see, you know, I think about this when you drive around. I don't know if you have these in New Hampshire, but you have conservatives that put outside like the Constitution is protected here. Right. Um, The idea that the Constitution is the founding document, that 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 is where the real democracy resides. And it's a particular perspective. Right. It's a it's a reactionary view of when America was a greater place. And I think that ties very, very much to, to race in the way that you suggested it. 
Well, and it's it's a particular reading of the Constitution as yes. well. It's not even just that document. It's like how we interpret particular parts of it. The other part of this, as I, as I think about, you know, the, the role of good governance and good institutions is part of the irony of it is if I could like snap my fingers and put in place, you know, some of these institutions, an election system, like whatever, a multi-member district, like a single transferable vote system, which still allows, you know, a couple of major parties, but it keeps, you know, extremists out of, but we, we know that when people get to do sort of rank choice voting, it makes it really hard for the crazies to get elected. It makes the sort of common sense middle ground people yeah. um, more likely to win. If I could do, you know, put in place term limits, which sort of depoliticizes the Supreme Court some, if we could make the system more transparent and more effective and more D, small D democratic, I think the irony is it would be better for everyone. And I think a lot of oh, the yeah. sort of fighting now about who gets to be in power comes back to this sense of uh, that, that things are limited, that, that only a certain number of people can benefit. And so we have to make sure that we're the ones benefiting. And a system that actually works for everyone, a system that just works, period, is more likely to lead to better policies, better economic outcomes, better political outcomes. And that's likely to turn the tone down on these this sort of tension as well. So it's, it is that our institutions have have contributed to the you know they create this minority rule but that's also what creates a lot of this sort of uh vitriolic partisanship as well because it feels like you know small groups have to fight over power as opposed to institutions that sort of bring people together and try to find ways to to improve everyone's life so um yeah i mean it, it becomes kind of a you know a snowball situation in which the 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 more uh, you know, the more limited it feels, you know, how, how access to power feels increasingly limited. It makes people fight even more over it, which makes it less likely that reform is going to happen. And, and it just kind of continues on the trajectory that we've been on for a long time. Well, if you have a good system, it will produce good governance or it will produce governance, I should say. And then the people can evaluate that governance, right? Whereas right now we don't evaluate governance because nobody gets anything done, right? So it's right. just a fear mongering of the other side and both sides to some degree benefit from that, right? Uh, particularly the Republicans prefer things not to get done because then they can say, see, this is the danger, the existential threat that the Democrats and the liberals pose. But if you you had a system that allowed for governance, good governance would be rewarded and poor governance would be punished. And and I think that's that's valuable, right? Because then everybody, to your point, everybody, most people, the democracy would benefit from such a system. But we've settled in this place where we're okay with non-governments, dysfunctional government, and uh, because it allows us to play this entertaining political game, which doesn't really produce results for anybody. Yeah. Yeah, we can't, you know, it's back to the idea again that we can't, we don't even share a vocabulary. If we had these sort of shared values of, you know, if people could be persuaded that, you know, the, you know, X is not fair, then we could, we could come to a solution in which, you know, we, we come up with a, a, a system, a policy that everybody feels like they can benefit from, but uh, we can't even agree on, you know, what it means to be democratic or what it yeah. means to, to, to benefit from government or whatever. Yeah, we're, we're in a, we're in a bad place, but again, it's, it's interesting. We're in a bad place. And I think their argument is really valid because of the institutions that we have, right? It, it has yeah. created a system that does not produce like true democratic results. 
that's that's so so well said. That's probably a good place to wrap up. So um, I, I think the listeners are going to want to go read this article now. So Phil, remind them. Tell remind them once again how they can find it. Yeah. So both of these, well, I, the two that I think of in particular are the, the Franklin Four piece on on Afghanistan. Is it, it's long, but it's really fascinating. It's a really interesting look at, at foreign policy decision making. And then the Levitsky and Zablat article called "How Demo- How American Democracy Fell So Far Behind." Both of those are linked on our webpage, so you can go to thepoliticslab.com. You click click on this week this week's uh, episode link. Um, and you'll see links to um, those articles. You'll see a link to the, the Dan Dresner piece that I mentioned earlier there as well. So you can um, read all of those. The, the Levitsky and Zablat one, I think, is great. It's worth worth kind of reading through and thinking a little bit about. Absolutely. Now, now you steer clear of any radioactive bores. Um, <laughs> and uh, I will see you next week. All right, Bill. <laughs> Bye. Bye, Bill. <laughs>